Well, we are beginning a, a new series in the book of Philippians this evening, so I invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, Philippians chapter 1. We'll be considering uh, just verses 1 through 2 uh, this evening. And as you're turning there, I'd like to give you a brief context to this book before we dive in. Acts chapter 16 uh, tells us of the origin and some more context uh, behind this, this Philippian church whom Paul is writing to. It's always nice when the epistles that we read about in the New Testament line up with the narrative of Acts, and in this case, uh, Philippians does. And we read in Acts 16 that Paul and Timothy planted uh, this church, and then a decade or two afterwards, Paul is sitting in a Roman prison and is writing uh, this letter, this letter of Philippians, to his beloved congregation. And one thing I'd like to note uh, of significance of uh, an interesting point as well from Acts chapter 16 is that Paul mentions that Philippi is a Roman colony. Now Philippi was quite a ways away from Rome, but it was a Roman colony. So people who lived in Philippi were Roman citizens. They, had, they were under Roman jurisdiction. They followed Roman culture, Roman dress, but yet they didn't live in Rome. They were in Philippi. So it really was the Rome away from Rome. And this is analogous to the Christian, the Christian who has a dual citizenship. We are called to live in this world, to engage in the different institutions of this world. Our ultimate citizenship is in the world to come. And Paul will uh, return to this idea as he analogizes with the Philippians' actual historical context. Um, in Philippians 3, he'll talk about how our citizenship is truly in heaven, not on uh, this earth. This coincides then with the life in exile theme that Reverend Stromberg has been devoting so much time to in the, in the, in the past few months. Uh, that we are pilgrims. We are aliens in this world. Uh, we are not truly, we don't truly belong to Babylon. We belong to the heavenly Jerusalem. So hopefully this ca- these categories will be helpful as we now dive into uh, this book of Philippians, which is using a, a similar idea as well. Well, let's now turn our attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Philippians chapter 1. Verses 1 through 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, thus ends the reading of God's holy and profitable word. May he write his word upon our hearts uh, tonight. You probably are wondering, why is he preaching a whole sermon on these two seemingly insignificant introductory verses? I think the temptation that we face is to treat the introductions to the epistles of the New Testament in a similar way we would treat uh, the, the greeting of a generic letter from a company, dear valued customer seems formulaic, it seems impersonal. We brush it aside. However, Paul is not just going through the motions here as he is writing these short two verses. In fact, many times the, the opening greeting of an epistle, the author is trying to foreshadow themes that will come up later in the book. Like the beginning of a thread that's woven throughout a tapestry, Paul is developing a theme, a thread, that will be woven throughout this book of Philippians. And this theme or this thread that Paul is introducing for us this evening is the theme of the Christian's identity. 
who are we as Christians? And because a Christian has this dual citizenship that I just mentioned, that we, we live in this world, but yet we ultimately belong to a homeland that we currently don't reside in. And this causes tension as we seek to navigate these two citizenships. You know, the Philippians would have felt this, this tension even more as they lived in Philippi, but they were Roman citizens. So the question that comes to mind is, where do we as Christians find our identity? That is, who are we ultimately? Where do we ultimately find our security, our meaning, our hope? What defines us? Boys and girls, if someone were to ask you, what is the most important thing about you? What would you say? Well, all of these questions touch on our identity. Who are we? And Paul's answer to this question is that the Christian's identity is to be found in Christ. The Christian's identity is to be found in Christ. So this is the main idea that we want to uh, focus our hearts and minds on this evening. The Christian's identity is found in Christ. Boys and girls, the most important thing about you is that you believe and trust in Jesus. And this theme of our identity in Christ is kind of like a diamond, just like you can hold a diamond up to a light and see different angles of it and you can have multifaceted views. Well, so to this theme of our identity in Christ, it's a rich idea. So I want to look at it in, in, a, in multiple angles uh, this evening, and three in particular. So first we'll consider how we're servants of Christ, how we are saints in Christ, and lastly, we're saved through Christ. So again, we'll consider how we're servants of Christ, saints in Christ, and saved through Christ. This in part makes up our identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. So first, we'll consider uh, we're servants of Christ. We're servants of Christ. So if you look with me in your Bibles, the very first phrase of this book in verse 1, we read, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. You may be, you may be wondering, well, Paul, you, you're only calling yourself and Timothy servants. You're not calling the Philippians, you're not calling us servants. And this is true, but as Paul is calling himself and Timothy servants of Christ, he's also implicitly saying that we all are servants of Christ because he wants us to imitate him and Timothy as they are living as servants of Christ. Well, let me show that to you. Uh, for example, Paul goes on in chapter 1. We'll consider this in a few weeks. But he goes on to give very specific details about his current circumstances. It's a little bit strange. We don't really read about this in any other book of the Apostle Paul. So much so that it almost seems like he's copying and pasting parts of his personal diary and inserting them into this book. So you're left wondering, well, why are you doing this, Paul? Why are you including these very personal musings? Well, I think the reason is, is he wants us, he wants the Philippians to imitate his mindset. He wants us to imitate how he is being a servant of Christ. In fact, Paul makes this explicit in chapter 3, verse 17. He says, brothers, join in imitating me. Join in imitating me. 
Furthermore, in chapter 2, Paul recounts how Timothy is a servant, how Timothy is living a life of humility. He says, I have no one like him who is genuinely concerned for your welfare. And again, why is Paul doing this? Well, Paul wants the Philippians, he wants us to imitate Timothy's example of how he is a servant of Christ. Thus, in verse 1, when Paul is calling himself and Timothy servants, he realizes we're all servants and we need to imitate their example. Now, this word that Paul uses for servant is the same word that is used in the first century, or that was used in the first century for the word slave. It can be translated either way, servant or slave. Now, this uh, was not a positive term for people in the first century. And of course, in our current climate, it's definitely not a, a, a positive term, uh, nor should it be. But Paul's point in using this language is to say that just as a slave in the first century was bound, absolutely bound to his master or her master, so too we are bound to Christ. We are bound to Christ. Now, the lie that we hear today so often in our culture is that belonging to Christ and belonging to his church restricts our freedom. That freedom really comes when we're able to shed ourselves of Christ, shed ourselves of being a member of a local church. But that is, in fact, a lie. Because Scripture is very, very clear the question is not, are you a slave or not? But which master are you serving? We all are servants. We all are slaves. For you're either serving the Lord Christ, the Lord and giver of life, or you're serving the devil. You're serving your own sin. And this is what we confess in Heidelberg Catechism question one. The very first thing we want our children to know in the Christian faith is this point. That Christ has redeemed us from the power of the devil. That we no longer are slaves to the devil, to our own sin, to our passions. We belong body and soul, life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is good news for us all. This means that sin no longer has power over us. You are not a slave to your emotions, your fears, your anxiety, or whatever particular struggle you may be dealing with. Of course, the presence of sin will remain until the second coming. But the power is broken, meaning sin no longer can condemn you, no longer can threaten you. That has been decisively broken. Now we're free. We're free to be able to serve Christ with our whole being. Well, the question that inevitably arises once we've, we realize that we belong to Christ is what does this look like? You know, does being a servant of Christ mean that we have to lock ourselves in a monastery and just read scripture and pray and fast all day? Is that what a servant of Christ looks like? Can you only serve Christ on Sundays? Well, Colossians 3 is, is pretty helpful here as we consider this question of what it means to, uh, to serve Christ. We don't have time to turn there uh, right now. But you can look it up on your own time this week. But Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 through uh, 4, 1. Paul is going through the different members of a household and giving instructions to each member. So he says, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Uh, he says, parents, don't discourage your parents. Don't provoke them 
don't provoke them. He says, children, obey your parents. He talks about the bond servants, which in our day and age would be like an employee. Uh, serve your masters well, faithfully. He talks to the masters, which would be like employers. You know, uh, be just, be fair. She's going through all these different people. And then he concludes this, this section by saying, whatever you do, so anybody he left out, he says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man, knowing that you serve the Lord Christ. You serve the Lord Christ. So we serve Christ not just on Sundays, not just in our prayer closet, but we serve Christ in every particular calling the Lord has given us. So you serve Christ by being the best spouse, parent, employee, employer, neighbor, and the list could go on. We have many different spheres that make up our life. Children, you serve Christ by obeying your parents, loving your siblings, pursuing excellence in school and all the other activities that you're engaged in. This is one aspect that that Martin Luther uncovered in in the Reformation, the 16th century. Because before the 16th century, uh, the Western church had said there's only one legitimate calling from God. And that's a call to the priesthood. In fact, the word vocation comes from the Latin, which means calling. But Luther said no. Every vocation, every job is a calling from God. He talked about how the farmer, the milkmaid, the, bake, the baker, the blacksmith, the street sweeper, they all are serving Christ as they serve their neighbor. He has a wonderful quote about how God masks himself behind the face of the baker and the farmer and the milkmaid. As we see the faces of these ordinary people, we can see the smiling providence of God as they are serving Christ by serving their neighbors. So we serve Christ in every calling the Lord has given us. Well, we often think of the idea of being a slave, a servant, as being quite negative, but not so when we are in the service of Christ. In the service of Christ, we are also called saints. We're saints in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like to now turn our attention uh, to the rest of verse 1, where Paul particularly addresses the Philippian church. And he says this. He says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Now, boys and girls, overseers is another word for elders. Elders in a church who are called to govern and oversee the spiritual matters of congregations. And deacons are those who, who serve in usually practical ways. But the first designation, and the most important designation, is that we are all saints. Everyone, from the youngest child to the oldest person, Paul says, we are, they are all saints. We, you are all saints. To trust, to believe in Christ is to be a saint. This is not a designation that the church declares upon you. Christ himself has made us saints. To be a saint is to be called holy. The word for saint is really just uh, literally translated as to all the holy ones. It means that we are holy. Now, why is this significant? Why is it significant that Paul would, would begin this letter by, by calling every Christian a saint? 
Well, what is the first holy place that we read about in the Bible? The garden. The garden of Eden was that first holy place that we read about. And Adam and Eve were called to cultivate the garden. They were called to keep it holy. They were to allow no unholy thing to enter the premises of the garden. But what happened? They failed. And their first step of failure was allowing the serpent, an unholy, unclean creature, into God's holy sanctuary. As the story goes on, we read that Adam was deceived and they sinned. They fell, they fell short of God's glory. And they were then expelled from the garden. Because God cannot dwell. God, who is a holy being, cannot dwell with unholy creatures, with sinful creatures. Well, the next holy place that we read about in the Bible is the temple. Uh, Israel, the nation of Israel, had a temple both when they were going through the wilderness after they were redeemed from Egypt and when they were in the, the Holy Land, the land of Canaan. As Solomon built this brick, glorious, beautiful temple. And the temple was a picture of God's throne room. Boys and girls, uh, I'm sure you have, uh, uh, have made a picture of maybe your dog, your cat, or your house. And just like that picture is only a representation of your actual house, your actual dog. So too the temple, the temple that Israel had was only a picture, a representation of God's throne room in heaven. That's what it was meant to symbolize. And God's presence dwelt there among his people. And because of this, it was very restricted. Only priests could go into this temple. They had to wash in water. They had to wear all these priestly garments and robes. They had to bring animal blood. And they only could come once a year. The ordinary Israelite couldn't even get close to the temple without being consumed. It was meant to teach them that we are unholy and God is a holy consuming fire. Fast forward to the New Testament and Christ comes. And who is Christ? Well, he is the true priest of God. He did what Adam failed to do. He did what the priest couldn't do. And he brought not the blood of bulls and goats, but he brought his own blood. The only blood that could really and finally take away our sins. And he offered it not in an earthly dwelling place, but in the very presence of God in heaven. And now, for those of us who are looking to Christ, trusting in Christ, we can approach God, not in an earthly sanctuary, but in the real thing, in the reality, in heaven itself. And we're not washed by water. We're washed with the blood of Christ. We don't have to put on robes and garments. We are dressed in the perfect robes of Christ's righteousness. And this is precisely why our call to worship, which we begin with each uh, Lord's Day, is so significant the Israelites would have been appalled the fact that you can be called into the presence of God without restrictions. It's a wondrous thing. But this is what Christ has done for us. Now we may know this intellectually, that we're holy in Christ because of his righteousness, his death on the cross. We may know that intellectually, but oftentimes we don't feel it. We, rather, we feel the very opposite. Unholy, unclean, stained, unworthy. And the reason for this tension is because the Christian is simultaneously sinner and saint. 
We are saint in Christ, but inwardly we're still uh, sinners. We struggle with sin. So it's important for us to realize that just because we sin, that doesn't mean we lose our sainthood. This isn't something that's in flux. This is a legal declaration that's sealed in the blood of Christ. And just because our obedience doesn't earn us this status, it doesn't mean that our obedience doesn't matter. It does. But we're called not to earn this status, but to live in accord with this status. It's a big distinction. Not to earn this status, but to live in accord with this great and glorious status that we've been given. Boys and girls, uh, this, what I'm trying to explain here is, is kind of like your place in your family. You all have a last name, and your last name indicates what particular family you belong to. And I would imagine that having that last name, belonging to your family, comes with certain expectations, rules. You have to conduct yourself in a certain way. But when you disobey, when you fail to live as a member of your family ought to live, you're not exiled, you're not kicked out of the family, your, your dad doesn't come and try to take away your last name. No, but you're, you're, you're secure. Your place in your family can never be taken away. But you're called to live in a way that would honor and put forth a good reputation for your family. So brothers and sisters, we are servants of Christ. Not lowly servants, but privileged servants. We are saints in Christ. And we only have these identities because we are saved through Christ. We are saved through Christ. And Paul describes this salvation by saying, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He uses these terms grace and peace to describe uh, who we are in our salvation. Now, to be saved is, again, to be that recipient, the recipient of God's grace and peace. And the order is significant. The order is significant. God's grace is what leads to God's peace. But what does Paul mean by these terms? I'd like to briefly, uh, briefly unpack um, what he means. Oftentimes, people speak of grace as receiving something that's undeserved. Now, that, uh, that's, that's an okay definition, but it's not as precise as we can be. Because this would indicate that we are actually on neutral grounds before God. If grace is receiving something you don't deserve, it means that we're actually, you know, on neutral grounds. We didn't really do anything that deserves punishment. But rather, grace is receiving something not only that you don't deserve, but receiving something when you actually deserve the very opposite. So think of your salvation like that of a bank account. It's not as if your bank account is zero when you enter this life. And then God, through his grace, gives us a million dollars. Rather, we owe a million dollars. Instead of God coming to us as judge exacting a payment that we cannot give forth, he wipes away the debt and he gives to us a million dollars. This is precisely what Christ did as he died for us, taking away that debt, and lived for us, giving us his righteousness. Again, children, imagine uh, you disobey your, your, your mom or your dad, and instead of your dad coming with punishment, with a spanking, he comes and gives you a very valuable gift. Now, that's counterintuitive. 
It probably wouldn't happen, but that's the gospel. That's what God has done for us in Christ. And that's the grace that we all are recipients of. Well, this grace then leads to peace. And notice the second word that Paul uses to describe our salvation. And when you think of this word peace, what comes to mind? You may think of a feeling. You may think of uh, a walk on the beach, a hike, grandma's house, a meal. And these are indeed elements of, 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 of peace, as peace is a feeling. But it is important to make a distinction when we speak about peace. Peace can be both objective and subjective. And peace, first and foremost, is objective. It has to do with our relationship before God. It's not a feeling. It's not a a place. Rather, this objective peace has to do with a right standing before God. As I mentioned in our catechism time, we all have sinned. We're alienated from God. We're in conflict with God. And Christ has come as mediator to restore our relationship with God, to offer us the terms of peace. And this peace is true no matter what you feel, no matter what you think, even no matter what you do. It's objective. And it's this objective peace that leads to that subjective peace that's given to us inwardly by the Holy Spirit. It's important to note that that subjective peace, it will wax and wane. We live in a fallen world with fallen bodies. So our assurance is rooted in the fact that God promises to us that in Christ we are at peace with God. And you probably have already recognized this, this phrase, grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, as, as the very phrase that begins every one of our liturgies, the God's blessing that comes to us. It's important to note that Paul begins almost every letter like this, with this blessing of God upon his people. As a consequence, we, believe, we begin our liturgies with that very same uh, uh, verse, grace and peace to you. And this teaches us what the purpose of the church is. Oftentimes people today can think of the church as a place to be entertained or a place to hear a TED Talk-like sermon to live our best life now. But Paul wants us to know that the church, first and foremost, is the place where guilty sinners can come and be the recipients of God's grace and peace through word and sacrament. Well, as I mentioned in the beginning of of this sermon, this theme of who we are in Christ, our identity in Christ, is a rich idea. You know, it's like a thread that will be woven throughout this entire book. You know, we'll see in chapter one that we are called to live for Christ. We are called to die in Christ. Chapter two, we're called to live humbly in Christ. Chapter three, we're called righteous in Christ. We suffer in Christ. And throughout the book, we see that our joy is in Christ. And as we are in, you know, this transitionary uh, moment as a church plant, as I will be here on a regular basis to bring you God's word and do the work of of the ministry here uh, in Gig Harbor, my hope and prayer is that this book will anchor your identity, my identity, our identity in Christ as he truly is our only comfort in life and in death. Let us pray. O Lord, we confess that we so easily allow 
things of this earth, things that are passing away, to be that which defines us. We ask that you cause us to know more and more who we are in Christ. And we pray that this reality would bring us freedom, joy, and peace as we continue our journey to the celestial city. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.